Welcome to Allegedly Guilty, our true crime channel where we discuss current cases uh, in the true crime area from our perspective as retired law enforcement officers now working on the criminal defense side. We're your hosts. I'm Angela Ng, and with me tonight is, with, is Joe Murray. Joe and I are both retired NYPD police officers and now work together at Joe Murray's Law Firm. So uh, tonight we have a, a wonderful show that we hope you're going to enjoy. We have an excellent guest. But the first thing I want to touch on is, you know, we had that tragic shooting of the three two precinct police officers. They were the fourth and fifth NYPD police officers shot this year. And unfortunately, both of them, we've just learned, uh, both of them have now passed on. Uh, the New York Post reported that Officer Wilbur Mora was actually critically and mortally wounded, uh, but they kept him, uh, sustained him so that uh, they could facilitate uh, organ donation, which is in itself an admirable thing. So, uh, you know, uh, our thoughts and prayers are with the families. I love to see the support coming out from all areas of the community. I really, I think we need to embrace this. This is Eric Adams has done a lot. I, I watched his uh, press conferences the last couple of days. He's really done a lot, and he's come out with a very aggressive, comprehensive, global approach to ending gun violence. This is something that when I ran for district attorney was my priority. I, I just felt that it was the, the biggest concern that we had facing us and with forecasting the, the effect of the bail reform, because I ran in 2019, what the bail reform was going to do, the immediate release of 2,000 uh, inmates on Rikers Island and the jails throughout the city, I, I was just predicting that we were heading in for some tough times. And sure enough, it's hit us. You know, we went from, I think we were less than 300 homicides back in 2018. And uh, we're at 488, and, and this year we're going to break the record again. It's just going up and up. And the shooting incidents, too. Shooting incidents are, are you know, rising. And, uh, you know, we're really in for some tough times. So I was really happy to see the way Eric Adams embraced this challenge, and he's going at it full force. So tonight we wanted to talk to uh, – a wonderful guest uh, because the, the missing link here, and I'm sad to say maybe Tom has seen otherwise, but I did see a lot of elected officials during these press conferences. I saw, you know, even Jermani Williams, the, uh, the city's public advocate, but I have not seen Alvin Bragg at the 3-2 precinct or, or elsewhere. Uh, we know that, you know, the, the, the shooter is deceased, they're not going to be able to prosecute him. But I think that he needs to reconcile his positions with what's happening in this tragedy that uh, befell us. So uh, without further ado, I don't want to keep Tom waiting. I want to introduce you to a wonderful man. Uh, I know him a long time. We've been uh, attorneys, defense attorneys right now, but he's had an incredible career. He, he started at the firm of Wilson Elser. Uh, a huge litigation firm. He was there for a while. He became a uh, district attorney under Westchester County District Attorney's Office under Janine Piero. Uh, Tom has, he's also in the military. He's uh, in the Army National Guard, served in Iraq. He served at the Javits Center 
Uh, he's a major in the Army National Guard, and he's he's served in a leadership position over the COVID-19 response at the Javits Center. Like Tom is really all in. Uh, he, he's a wonderful trial attorney. He's got so many things in his tool belt that would have been very helpful if he were elected district attorney. So without further ado, I want to bring on Thomas Kniff. Hey, Joe, how are you? Angela, good to see you guys as always. And, and thanks for that. Uh, thanks for that humbling introduction. You know, Tom, that introduction doesn't do you justice because you really just have such a, a resume. And uh, if you want to expand on that, please. No, I, I again, I thank you. And, and I'm not, I've never been someone who liked uh, talking about myself. Um, uh, you know, I, I've done some interesting things. I've always tried to, you know, early in my legal career, I always, I, I kind of decided to try to, whenever practical, at least, to take the path less traveled. Um, you know, so I left big law, even though it was, uh, you know, a lot of opportunity and certainly uh, financially rewarding to become a prosecutor. And from there, I got involved in the JAG. Um, you know, I did a lot of these sort of, you know, took a lot of these alternate paths. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been great to me. Um, and, and I'm glad, uh, I'm glad I've been able to do it. I, I've gotten, I've always feel that, you know, whatever I've got given, I've gotten much more in return, even though I didn't set out, I didn't plan it that way. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, just glad to, to try to do my part and being a defense attorney. Um, you know, I, I, the DA's race didn't work out, but being a defense attorney is doing God's work as we both know. Yeah, it's an, an important role. And, uh, you know, the, the incredible cases that I've had, and we we had a couple that we shared together, you know, the, you're impacting people's lives on such a grand scale. And, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, you know, we have clients that have been accused of terrible things. Uh, but, you know, what we pursue is is the rule of law, the Constitution. We defend our criminal justice system by vigorously putting the evidence to the test that the, the government presents. I have no shame at all whatsoever in defending the Constitution. It's what I did as a police officer, and it's what I'm doing now as a defense attorney. So I, I, I know that you share that, that perspective as well in your military service and your, your you know, legal career. But you, know, you are a partner. You, you're a founding partner of the firm Razor and Kniff. That's another big accomplishment. A lot of people don't realize what it means to be a solo practitioner. We don't work for the government. We don't get our government cheese every month. We're out there meeting clients, uh, you know, representing them, presenting, you know, uh, ourselves on their behalf, which is an important position, you know, and it, it's, you know, it's hard to, to run a private practice, you know, especially in the law field. You know, I think there's about 190,000 lawyers in the state of New York. And quite often I'll tell a client who may be upset with the way things are run. I'm like, listen, you know, there's 190,000 other lawyers. I may not be the right guy for you. So feel free, you know. So uh, so I want to just, you know, hit hit this over here just to give some more background to you. You know, this is a great picture. We had a district attorney candidate who's an ice hockey player. You know, this is Tom over here, the fourth from the the left facing you. Um, on top of that, you know, obviously we we talked about 
our military service here. I love it. You know, I think I think everybody should should have to serve in the military. You know, as uh, citizens, I know Israel does that. I think it just gives you more. Not that I was in the military. I was. I went right to the NYPD when I was 20 years old. But I really do think it gives you a more profound, you know, respect for the country and the flag and the Constitution, uh, you know, when you've served your country. So what do you think, Tom? I don't think. I yeah, I, oh, okay. I, I agree. Um, you know, and uh, you guys hearing me right, by the way? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. So, um, yeah, you know, it, 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 it's. I think probably the single best career move I ever made, um, you know, and uh, again, a little bit unorthodox because I had already graduated law school. Um, I'd already begun my legal career when I first stepped into the military. And, um, you know, I, I, my only regret is that I didn't know about it sooner. Um, and obviously I knew the military existed, but I, you know, I didn't, recognize it as you know a tangible career path and how it f would fit into what my life's goals were and to the extent i have any regret it's just that you know it's yeah, i didn't get involved in in college in a rotc program um or perhaps you know uh enlisted even in a reserve capacity earlier or, or start or when active duty um because it, it is uh you know it, it, it's really a separate society it's a society within our society and you know it, it's kind of funny because the older i've gotten you know when i when i was a young officer in my 20s you know you kind of looked at the sort of rigidity in which a lot of the way things are done in the military and, and the way decorum is, is observed and you know yes sir and ma'am and so forth and and you kind of you know at times when you're off the clock you rolled your eyes at it or maybe you, know, you even resented it um at times um you know as i've gotten older and society is at least from my perspective has become more sort of frayed as far as you know our sense of civility our sense of decorum uh you know people getting on airplanes and uh you know using the overhead uh, uh air pieces to, to dry their clothing you know <laughs> on a full flight i mean they, you know, maybe this stuff has always been out there to some degree, but with social media, you see a lot more of it. You know, it, I, I find it so much more comforting to step into a military environment where that 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 decorum and structure, uh, you know, and just re regard for for civility exists uh, more than unfortunately it seems to exist in everyday society. Yeah. Yeah, that's important. I think that's missing. You know, the the division in the country and and the city and state right now. It's it's just I've never seen it this bad. Uh, and I'm I'm really hoping. And I don't. To be honest with you, we talked about this. I really don't want to attack Alvin Bragg. I just want to highlight some of his positions and what he's looking to do. I'm really looking to persuade him. And I think, you know, sometimes in light of tragedy, something good can come of it. And perhaps, I mean, Angela was just looking it up. This shooting took place about three or four blocks from where Alvin Bragg grew up. Yeah. I mean, you know. Three he, blocks. Three blocks. From yeah. Where I, he grew listen, up. I, 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 uh, 
I mean, I, I, first of all, I agree. I mean, look, we, we, we should all be rooting for the guy. You know, you, you never, you know, you're, you're, you know, you, you don't win the race or the person you supported doesn't win the race or you're a presidential candidate. Uh, you know, it comes in on a losing side. You know, you don't root against the other guy, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you want him. Because if he fails, we he... all fail, you know? So yeah, of it's course. Alvin you know, Bragg fails to lead the Manhattan DA's office and, and speak for public safety. We're all unsafe, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, look, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, having said that, you know, he's now a public figure and, you know, this is a democracy. And, and if there are people out there, and apparently there are many that think that his policies are, are wrongheaded. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why I thought the district attorney's race was as important or more important than the mayor's race is that, look, you know, this these are life and death issues. That's not hyperbole. That's not political speak. I'm not on the campaign trail anymore. And I doubt, you know, I ever will be again. Um, you know, that, that's just real life. You know, you can have it in an office where somebody is running for legislature and, you know, you disagree with their economic policy. You think it's going to lead to, to, you know, a lack of growth in the economy or you don't like where they stand on education and so forth. We're not minimizing any of that. But, but when you talk about, you know, policies uh, that affect the criminal justice system and, you know, in such a profound way, and we have someone running for, the district attorney's office, whether it's Alvin Bragg or someone else, that at least on the surface seems to be purporting policies that are, uh, uh, you know, antithetical to traditional concepts like deterrence or, 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 you know, or just, you know, supporting police and the mission of eliminating, uh, you know, or preventing crime that, could really to that that could and I, I thought think will lead to life and death consequence. You know, you have to speak up, but but the speaking up isn't you know isn't to, to demonize the man. Uh, you know, I think I think DA Bragg is a decent person. Um and I think he has qualifications that that are you know very uh you know make make give him the the foundation he needs to succeed in this job. But you know we have to call out those policies um when you know they're so on their on their face uh uh you know again antithetical to law and order during his campaign there was a video he talks about um when he was at the u.s attorney's office they went and sued fedex and ups because they were transporting the illegal cigarettes that these people were selling on the street but you know what that's still not you know the criminals are just going to find another way to get this stuff. Yeah, I think, you know, what, what he was trying to address there, I think it was an attack on the Eric Garner situation that he was selling loose cigarettes and saying, I have a better way of approaching this. And he went after the carriers who were, you know, um, delivering them. So, but what does that do to the local shopkeeper who was complaining that, He's got to compete with people on the street who are selling loose cigarettes tax-free. And, you know, uh, so I, I don't see the connection that he's trying to make there. And I think that's a problem that we're having with my, my feeling is with, you know, that progressive left, they're removing personal responsibility for the individual actors. And they're trying to blame the big carriers, like in, in this case, Alvin Bragg went after UPS and FedEx. 
Well, right now, a lot of uh, like Melinda Katz during our debate of uh, district attorney in Queens, she was focusing on gun manufacturers and really just looking yeah. to give programs to people who are carrying and using firearms. And it just baffled me why we're going to take that personal responsibility when someone makes a decision to pick up a firearm, point it at someone, and pull the trigger. Why are we not holding them accountable? The answer is, Joe, that it, it is politically comfortable for them to talk about going after the manufacturers, going after out-of-state drug, um, out-of-state, you know, gun sales and so forth. That is politically, they're in a political comfort zone being Democrats, being progressives, what have you. All right. Um, you know, no one's saying don't do that. It's right. very difficult, exactly. I'll point out, to do it from the perspective of a local prosecutor's office, because the reality is that, look, you know, we know where the guns are coming from, right? You know, and one of the things that, that DA Bragg spoke about is his time at the attorney general's office. He put together this whole sophisticated program, which, you know, it had heat maps and so forth. And, it, you know, you take any gun, any homicide, any, any attempted murder in the Bronx, Harlem, okay, you know, this particular gun was traced back to a dick sporting goods in Norfolk, Virginia that was legally sold. So, you know, okay, well, you know, fine. Dick's sporting goods has the right to sell that gun in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, right. You know, Smith and Weston has the right to manufacture it. Um, it's nice that you found out that it originally originated in Virginia, but that, that has no prosecutorial value in dealing with a homicide case on the streets of New York City, uh, you know, if if Congress uh, at one point, you know, at some point does away with the, the Second Amendment or takes some other measures, fine. You know, that, that's that's it. I, I I have no dog in that hunt. All right, the, the, you know, we're talking law and order in the streets of New York, but we have to deal with the Constitution and the laws as they exist here today. And the reality is that getting guns off the street, you know, you can you can do that other stuff to the extent it's practical. But getting guns off the street requires street level, targeted law enforcement police work, right? And that has potential to result in situations or narratives that are very politically uncomfortable for those sides, okay? Because when you're dealing with, you know, street crews, uh, you know, up, up in uh, by the polo ground houses or the St. Nicholas houses with that, that recruit 14 and 15 year olds that deal in guns and deal in violence. You know, you, you, you don't just send a uniformed police officer to, to start a dialogue or a social worker. You know, you have these are clandestine organized criminal organizations. You know, we didn't take down John Gotti uh, you know, and, and the, uh, the the Italian mafia that, that existed in the 80s, half Italian, by the way. So leave me alone if anybody out there wants to start saying I'm being anti-Italian. Shut me up. Um, you know, we, di we didn't do it by sending, uh, you know, uniformed police officers to knock on the front door of the Rebanite Social Club. It doesn't work that way. Um, so we have to make a choice. You know, do we want to continue to watch? 11-month-year-old children get shot in the face, kids dying on playgrounds, police officers gunned down in hallways. We're going to say, look, you know, we have to, you know, do what is necessary within the within the, the ambit of the law, right? And we're defense attorneys, so we, we apply that trade 
daily. Uh, you know, you can't violate the Fourth Amendment. You can't violate the Fifth and Sixth Amendment. Um, but, you know, are we going to do what needs to be done to save lives? And when we're talking about saving lives, we're talking about not disproportionately is, isn't a sufficient uh, um, adjective. We're talking about overwhelmingly black, black and brown lives, uh, you know, and black and brown lives coming from, you know, socioeconomic disadvantaged communities all right that that is a statistical fact as to who is most likely to succumb and be a victim of gun violence in new york city that's that's the fact those are the facts another state another place i i don't know what those numbers are but i know what they are here we have a question from on the case uh she's an avid supporter how do you downgrade that without classifying it as non-criminal well, uh, as Bill Clinton might say, it depends on what your definition of that is. Uh, <laughs> what are, is we, uh, you know, are, are we talking? What what exactly are we are we talking about the uh, the cigarettes and the downgrading? You know what I mean? Um, I think you know one of the main things that I that jumped out at me in Bragg's memo is downgrading robbery to larceny removing yeah. the force element because that's that's really what the just for our view is the difference between larceny removing somebody's property uh away from them uh stealing their property and robbery is the element of force and they, that there's different subdivisions that the force is manifested in different ways it could be through a firearm it could be a weapon it could be acting with another person is uh and through intimidation so what he's trying to do now is because of this, you know, I believe, I, maybe let me just ask you, Tom, I think this all comes from, it all stems from this whole concept of decarceration. They want to make it very hard for police to arrest. They want to make it very hard for prosecutors to get convictions. And then now with what we are seeing as parole reform, they want to make it so much more uh, easier to get out of prison. I mean, that's my look at this. What do you think of decarceration? I, I, you know, I agree. And I always said, you know, what, uh, what the real goal of the criminal justice reform bill, um, which included the bail reform, the discovery reform, which isn't talked about as much, but but I think is arguably just as culpable for the the, the absolute you know uh, mayhem we're seeing on the streets, um, and, and and you know raise the age and so forth. It was you know look the the, the, the ambition is not to, wasn't reform. The ambition was to you know decrease the number of arrests, prosecutions, and incarcerations, as you said uh as much as possible and congratulations they've succeeded admirably um you know when you are when judges are forced to release people that should not be released right now not only are you putting a dangerous person back into the community but leverage that the district attorney's office may have once had in order to get a plea out of that person and like i know that that's not what bail is intended to do and so forth but the reality is that was a unintended consequence of it in many cases. Um, and we can argue all day whether it should have been or not, but it was there. All right. That that resulted in has resulted in a lot less cases getting resolved. These people back in the street and recidivating. 
Um, the discovery reforms have overwhelmed the DA's offices to the point where they've had to offload cargo because, and I can't blame them. I mean, I will, I will not blame Melinda Katz. I will not blame Alvin Bragg because the, this is a legislative process, a, a legislative reality they've inherited and it's been un, unfunded. So, you know, there's no way that they can comply with these discovery obligations in a world of ever increasing discovery, body cams, cameras everywhere and so forth, and continue to prosecute these cases. Um, you know, so so that's exactly what it's been. And and, and then you look at, you know, I think the the uh, the caller had, had said, you know, with respect to the robbery. Yeah. I mean, that that is a problem. Somebody goes into a store. So it's bad enough to say that we're going to turn a blind eye to just a simple shoplift. Um, now someone has graduated to the point where they're going to go into a store and threaten. You know, I don't care whether it's with a knife, an unloaded firearm, a pork chop, uh, you know, threaten the people there that if they don't, you know, acquiesce that they're taking you know the goods of, i mean the the potential for that to go south the potential for that to escalate whether it's a store worker who tries to use physical force to defend the store uh, a, a customer a security guard i mean there are we know as defense attorneys and and you both know as former law enforcement a hell of a lot better than i do you know how the unintended consequences of these things can turn take on a life of their own but we're well, going to continue store owners are just going to hire armed security and it's that's not going to be good for anybody but you know well, and assuming they can afford to do you know or they're going to go out or they're going to go out of business right? and, and again you know this all comes back to angela you know who 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 suffers the most when a Dwayne reed goes out of business right i mean you know part of having this dialogue is just to talk open and frankly yeah. you go into a Dwayne reed or a right yeah. aid in manhattan there's not a lot of people behind the counter that look like me working there. Okay. Yeah. You know, they, they are yeah. overwhelmingly people of color and, and God bless them because they're, 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 you know, throughout the pandemic, you know, it, you're taking your life in your hand, going to a job like that and they're making too little money. Um, and now we're losing those jobs because, all right, maybe a national retailer can handle higher private security. Um, or maybe they'll close some stores, like we just read in the paper the other day about the Rite Aid. I think it was on 50th and 8th. Um, you know, but the little mom and pop on the corner can't afford to hire a security guard. So what happens to them? Um, so you know, that, I think that was understandably the most incendiary portion of that memo, or, or one of them. And, and it just, you know, to, to say that you're gonna we're gonna downgrade burglaries or robberies and charge them as shoplifting, which you know traditionally results in, in a in an acd which is for those who don't know is a deferred prosecution stay out of trouble for six months going your way it you know just, just sends a horrible message and, and if you, you start condoning them walking in without you know in, in committing a robbery albeit without a loaded firearm all right you know it doesn't take much for them on the next round to say hey you know what maybe i'll try it with a gun this time yeah that that's to me that's yeah. so significant the the legislature our, this is how democracy works. We elect our representatives, right? And our representatives get together and they vote on and pass legislation on our behalf. They're our representatives and they act on our behalf to, to create this legislation. So 
then we have and we vote for our chief executives like the district attorney and their role if you look at new york county law section 700 and it's also uh, their constitutional offices section 13 uh article 13 section 13 of the constitution they're constitutional officers and by statute they're obligated to follow the law they're not supposed to be super legislatures where they decide no forget what the, the legislative body wants to be criminalized i'm gonna only prosecute certain crimes in my view that's illegal certainly prosecutors are entitled to their discretion based on the facts the evidence mm, i'm not going to charge robbery here because i don't think i'll get a conviction but to say blanketly we're going to downgrade all robberies unless there's uh, a, a serious physical injury that results from it, that's, I think, a violation of their oath of office and Section 700. But, but that's the way our government is supposed to function. You're not supposed to usurp the legislature. If they enact these laws, you should you know, give them due course and, and try to follow them and adhere to them. You're not a legislator. So, you know, one of the issues that I found in, in Queens at the time I was running was the raising the age uh, legislation that came in. Again, similarly, it works against me. If that's what they want, and this is what our our citizens have voted for, but there's other, other counter legislation like, you know, the... Uh, um, juvenile offender statute. You know, I don't have to send them to family court. I think it might be better if I prosecute them and, and sentence them as juvenile offenders. That's also on the books. Uh, violent felony statutes uh, are on the books. You know, uh, you know, a persistent felony offender statutes are on the books. So it's not just one thing. You have to look at the totality of it. But I'm wondering, you know, specifically, just as we're talking about the raising the age, one of the things I heard in Adam's approach is he said, and I didn't, I wasn't aware of this statistic. I, I, I'm not shocked by it, but he said the guns that are being taken off the street now, and there were 6,000 guns last year removed by NYPD off the street. The guns that are being taken off the street now, I think – there's a good correlation with the raising the age statute that all these gangsters know that juveniles can get deferred and sent over to family court. So they're the ones holding the guns that out on the street. And then when they need yeah. it, they'll pull it from the kid. So we're actually victimizing our youth with this, you know, particular legislation. And what do you think? Right. And, and that was, you know, and that was as predicted. I mean, we, you know, we numerous people saw that coming and said, look, you know, if, you know, I mean, you know, and part of it is the difference between, you know, when you when you actually do this every day um, as a police officer on the street, as a defense attorney in the trenches right, in, in the state system, not in the federal system, which, uh, you know, look, we practice in both places and, you know, the federal system is great, but it, it is very different. You know, yeah. the, the night and day difference between how the state criminal justice system operates and and law enforcement defaults to the states, not to the feds. 
feds are selective in what they take and, and they right. have limited jurisdiction, of course. As it should um, be, though. But, Constitutionally, you know, it should be. As, as, it, as it should be. No, no, listen, as it should be. We shouldn't be looking for the federal government to fix all our problems. That's why mm-hmm. I have a problem when these politicians get up there and say, well, we need Washington and so forth. No, we need we need cops that are empowered, not emasculated, doing the job that needs to be done, done here on the streets of New York City. But, you know, when you handle the gang cases like you and I have, you know that it's 14 and 15 year old is, 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 is probably the the ripe time for when those kids are recruited. Um, and, you know, yeah, the problem with raise the age is, look, there's not a, there's no no one has a problem with saying, hey, you know, we want the district attorney's office and the court system to take an extra hard look at cases involving youths, um, stand-up youth courts, have a mechanism where those cases can be removed to family court if the, the judge and the prosecutors believe that it is appropriate, and certainly it is appropriate in, in, in many cases. Mm-hmm. But when you put a blanket policy out there that says, hey, look, you know, 14, 15-year-old, you know, you can't be prosecuted as an adult with, with the exception of perhaps murder and, and, and very narrow other offenses. Um, you know, that reverberates throughout gangland. And, you know, we all know, you know, representing uh, defendants and, and, and going to Rikers and so forth, that, that those on the inside know the nuances of the system, particularly those nuances that work in their favor and, and they often know about it. They know about these changes before we do, um, you know, so it, it, it send it, it does violence to the concept of deterrence. If gangs out there know that, you know, they have an insurance policy different than saying, look, a judge's discretion, they might divert the case, but they might not. When you take away that might not, it's going to embolden criminal action and, and embolden predators, the, the, the older members of, the, of these, uh, the, these gangs that, that terrorize our most vulnerable neighbors and uh, neighborhoods to descend and target these youths that are, are vulnerable in their own right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just know from, you know, when I was a police officer, the last patrol command I was in was the 115. And there was a lot of gang activity in the 115. So when I when I was running, the uh, the Queen's Eagle posed it as a, a question to both of us to get our response about the raising the age. And the issue was why was Queens County the lowest referral level of all the the uh, district attorneys to refer cases to family court? And I was like, listen, you know, when you're dealing with you know gangs and violent gangs and you know, there's a lot more involved than, you know, give them a program in family court. And to be honest, my opinion of family court and God bless people that work in family court, it's a disaster. It's a disaster. It's a closed shop. There's there's no oversight. There's no sunlight. I so much rather, you can't get a jury trial in family court, you know? So I, I so much prefer to have matters in criminal court. I think at least for Queens County, where that's the bulk of my practice, the people in charge of those programs over there and the diversion, they're wonderful. They're wonderful to deal with, and they really put their heart into it. So if you have a, a young kid that you think can be saved and, and you're, 
you're pushing to get them into a program, the first thing is education. A lot of these kids, they never get their uh, high school diploma or GED. Get them education. I, one of the things I wanted to do, I love boxing. I thought it was such a great, it was a great equalizer. And it was something that, you know, I, I was able to get people, you know, interested in and involved in. And Patty Russo, a sergeant for the NYPD, he runs that Cops for Kids program. And uh, they've had so much success. So that's something else I wanted to try to do. But there's other ways than just eliminating prosecutions, you know, like I think I heard you saying during one of your I think it was the debate that you're like, wait a minute, I'm not saying that everyone should go through the system and be prosecuted and go to jail, but they should come through the system and maybe we'll direct them to a program or an outlet where we can work on them or community service. I mean, people look at us like we're animals yeah. and we just want to lock people up. That's not true. Well, you know, and I think that's because, you know, I mean, look, you know, as we've seen um, by the uproar, uh, you know, when, when Bragg put out his memo, which really was something that had existed on his website for, for a year, uh, just the media doesn't want to do their job. Um, so, you know, I don't think it was fair to him to act like he sprung this on everyone. We know that wasn't the case. I mean, we were talking about this for months and months and months. Just no one, you know, other than people that were really interested and tuned in. Um, wanted to listen, but but the point, you know, the, but because of that, you know, there's this information vacuum and it allows the myths of the progressive left to just go unchecked. So part of that myth was, you know, look, the average person out there is thinking, oh, gee, you know, these shoplifting cases, you know, we have Rikers Island is filled with, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of people that just, you know, were, were too poor to purchase toothpaste. You know, I mean, someone referenced that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they wound up in Rikers because we have this cruel, harsh criminal justice system. And the guys like us and anyone who's worked in the system who's being honest knows that that's just absolute hogwash. No one ever no one ever goes to Rikers, go to Rikers Island for, for stealing toothpaste or for committing a shoplifting in general. But the, 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 the stated, you know, hang on the wall policy of every district attorney's office in New York City was, you know, your first shoplifting case, you got an ACD. We talked yep. about it before. The case gets shelved for six yep. months, dismissed and sealed. Maybe you have to do a day or two to a community service. If you went to Bergdorf's and you stole a, and you committed a big pet at larceny, like a, a $900 dress instead of a, uh, you know, a $20, uh, uh, you know, T-shirt from uh, Target, uh, you know, maybe you'd have to do a week of community service and maybe you'd have to do take the stop lift class. But it ended it ended in nothing. Right. Right. And, you know, your second rodeo, maybe it, maybe once you got caught again, maybe you'd get a disorderly conduct, a violation out of crime. Third, fourth time, maybe you'd have to eat a misdemeanor, but it would be a no jail misdemeanor. Right. Um, now, the other thing, you know, one one little cute uh, footnote to that is, you know, generally speaking, Someone's not getting caught every time they shoplift. Right? Exactly. You know, you may. I, I, remember doing, I remember sitting through a DWI seminar when I was a young defense attorney, or maybe I was still a prosecutor. I said, "Look, on average, you know, studies show that you got a DWI eighty times on average before you get caught. Right. So, unless you have tremendously bad luck, you're not coming through the system on your third or fourth shoplift unless you've done it like a hundred times. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, so, that's or, that's or, you know. Then it's not a jail consequence. So, you know, no. at some point, you know, we either have a society or we don't. At some right. point, we're either able to, you know, follow thousands of years of Judeo-Christian, 
you know, morals would say that shall not steal and say, look, all right, you know, we gave you a few cracks at the apple. You're not, you're still doing this. It ain't because you need bread to steal for your family. You know, this isn't Les Miserables. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, now there's a consequence to it. Uh, but, you know, that all gets lost in the mix. And the progressives got people out there believing that, you know, again, our jails are full of these young kids uh, that, you know, are from poor backgrounds and and just, you know, they, they needed to take care of their personal hygiene and, and they, 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 they swiped the uh, deodorant off the shelf in Dwayne Reed uh, or Rite Aid. Um, absolute myth, or, you know, they got caught with, you know, the personal amount of possession of marijuana. And, you know, next thing you know, they're in jail for six months. Total. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you heard that, that the marijuana, we actually have a separate ACD for marijuana offenses. You can get a marijuana. In other words, even if the DA objected, which they could, which they never did, it was there for the taking. It was literally. You know, you had your, you had a, a, a statutory right to that ACD. Um, now, you know, but but when you talk about the myths, and sometimes what they do is they 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 cherry pick. So you know, occasionally you'll see this article, and they'll say, "Well, you know, there so and so who went to jail for six months for stealing a bar of soap," and we're looking at this and we're like, well, "Wait, no one ever went to jail for just stealing a bar of soap." What they didn't tell you is that so and so stole the bar of soap when he had an open warrant for three armed robberies in the Bronx and he had the rap sheet 30 pages long and right. then they picked him up with the soap, you know, but of course that gets left out of the narrative because it's inconvenient. And, you know, if you're relying on the New York times or the daily news to actually dig a little deeper and ask those questions, right. You're going to be waiting a long time, right? Well, there's no story if they ask those questions and report it. Well, of course, <laughs> you know, it, it's the, you know, look, uh, we're, we're, we, as a society, we're conditioned, you know, once you start painting in gray, you know, you lose your audience, right? So, right. you know, a Netflix documentary isn't any good if it says, well, you know, the prosecution wasn't perfect, but they did this and the defense, you know, it's only good if you portray an absolute railroad job. And that's why those documentaries, and I put them in quotes because that's not what they are, they're entertainment, you know, leave out those inconvenient truths because they're, they're one, they're, they're profit driven uh, projects, right? So you want to do a documentary on Netflix. I, mean, I was involved in a documentary on Eric Garner, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where, where yeah. I, where I went, where I played the prosecution of the police um, in, in this, this mockumentary or hybrid, you know, you got to raise money to put those on. Right. And if I'm right. a new guy who invests in, in, in something and say oh wait now you're going to tell me a story about someone who you know might have get railroad we're not really sure it's a little bit oh, yeah no thanks i'm gonna you know i'll i'll uh i'll wait for the next one yeah and, and unfortunately yeah. you know and now look you know that that's understandable but that's why you need a media that's engaged that comes in and does their job and as we saw it in my race um and certainly i wasn't the only one i mean you know they just checked out it wasn't happening yeah, that's a great segue, yeah. Tom. I, I do wanna I do wanna talk about that because that's a problem. Like I am not a politician. I never had any, you know, goals to run for office. The the opportunity presented itself. Melinda Katz, who's never represented a criminal client in court, never tried a case. Uh, really, in my opinion, just having been a Queens resident, she's been a borough president for eight years. I could not understand how Nobody's challenging this woman from the Republican side uh, to, to yeah. do criminal justice. She's got no criminal justice background. Whereas in your race, 
Alvin Bragg did have criminal justice background, but it was not to prosecute. I mean, he's he's changed his whole history of what he did, even at the U.S. Attorney's Office and the prosecutions he sought and and the protracted sentences that he uh, advocated for. Now his campaign was not to prosecute. So that's why I'm so glad that we had our conversation that you made the decision to run. But here's the important thing that I want to bring out. Where was the help? What You yeah. did everything yourself. I, I mean, I, I had the, yeah. the benefit of Angie, who ran my whole campaign. Uh, but uh, where was the help? Even the conservative media. Tucker well, had yeah, and that's the frustrating thing. And, and uh, I mean, look, and I will, you know, let me just footnote that. It was, you know, an amazing group of volunteers, you know, keyword yeah. being volunteers. Cool. Yeah. Uh, my, my brother, uh, Michael Tanner, you know, served as my, you know, de facto campaign manager and, you know, that never, you know, he, he paid to have that job because he donated a lot of money and worked his right. off. And a lot right. of other people fell into that category. But the reality is, is that, look, you know, unless you have the big money behind you, you know, you can only stand out on so many street corners. And we did that every night, every weekend, hand out so many palm cards, um, you know, you got to be able to get the message to people via mass media, particularly when you're running a downstream race. Right. right. And add to that, you don't have co coattails because Curtis Sliwa was not going to sell in Manhattan. Uh, and we're actually I mean, this and two bucks will get me a cup of coffee. But I got to I got to every once in a while, you got to give yourself a, a little uh, right. uh, to no, your own horn. Uh, you know, we, we beat Curtis by by about five, six, five thousand votes in Manhattan. And it's one of the first times in decades, one of the only times in decades that a downstream candidate has outperformed the top of the ticket like that. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, that's quite, so, that's quite an accomplishment. Don't minimize that. He yeah, was well, running for you know, mayor but, but, at the top but, office. Right. You know, so so now look, I, I don't want to take anything away from uh, from Alvin Bragg's victory. Um, you know, he, he won a tough primary, um, and, and he, he won. Uh, you know, he he got a, a huge percentage uh, of votes relative to mine in the general. But the reason why you know we thought there was an opportunity here beyond just standing on principle, and I was happy to do that, was you know the voter turnout was so abysmal. I mean, the primary, there was about 200,000 Democrats that, that turned out, um, which was, uh, I think, about, you know, under 25% of the vote. And we predicted, and I, and I think we were just about right, that, you know, there may be less or would be less in the general because, you know, right. they'd be tuning out. Right. Manhattan didn't go for Adams. They weren't going to be running out thinking they had to stop Sliwa. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, you know, Manhattan has, I think, about 1.1, I've heard as high as 1.2 registered million registered voters. Um, so, you know, if you only have 150, 175, 200,000 Democrats showing up, you know, there, there's almost a million voters, a million ducks sitting out there. So we yeah. said to ourselves, you know, look, there, there are over 100,000 Republicans registered in Manhattan. It's, it's about a one to nine ratio, but they're there. Um, there's a couple hundred thousand independents and you know there's some democrats that probably register as democrat because it's what you do in new york city but mm -hmm. they tend to lean more republican and they're a moderate democrat so we we said you know look it would never be easy and, and it was always going to be a moonshot but and joe you and i had this conversation so you yeah. know 
you know, yeah. if we can get the resources that we can get 100, 150,000 of these million people off the couch because they say, hey, look, you know, I may be a Democrat, but this is crazy. I don't want this. I don't want people being, you know, allowed to commit commercial robberies and being charged with petty larceny um, and so on and so forth that we, you know, we, we might be able to do something here. Um, you know, and the problem was twofold. Uh, you know, we never were able to get the buy-in from the, the, the billionaire crowd that, that we thought would get behind this and are political and were politically of our mindset, but just, you know, we're doomsayers and want to get involved. It wasn't practical. And then the one, two punch was the media, you know, just, and, and, and to, to disabuse anyone from th- from saying, oh, you know, isn't there, you know, right winger blaming the, the liberal media? The biggest offenders were the, the conservative media. You know, yeah, Fox News never great. did a thing. Yeah. Uh, the Wall Street Journal never did anything. The New York Post, they endured me, but they dealt at minimum. They never did a, a feature. You know, the liberal papers at least did it. I didn't, or, or some of them did. Uh, I didn't yeah. necessarily like yeah. what they were saying, yeah. but, the, but they, they did the bare minimum at least. Um, and you know, that was devastating and, and I, will never understand it because look, you know, the notion that you don't report on a race because you believe that someone doesn't have a chance to win, you know, at least let the narrative be out there. There was, there was a national surge on crime. The, the, the progressive prosecutors, you know, were, were, were newsworthy around the country because how bad San Francisco was in LA and threats of recalls, you know, at least let this narrative be had and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, I I got to tell you I'm I I'm not afraid to name names too because I watch Sean Hannity's show and he he just he's just salivating over Alvin Bragg and he has so much to say about him and and not just Alvin Bragg but you know these woke prosecutors all across the country but why didn't you take any effort to look at the race. He was talking about this during the campaign. It didn't come about just after he got elected. Why didn't you take any interest in who was running against him? You know, all these conservatives, John Castamatidis, he's our local billionaire Republican. What, did you even get a phone call with him? I mean, that, that's just shocking. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we tried to get to him. Uh, people, we did get to him. I mean, people approached him and it wasn't happening. Um, I, I won't say too much, but it wasn't happening, which, hey, look, you know what? You're, you made your money. It's yours to do what yeah, you will absolutely. with. Um, who am I to tell anyone you got to give your money to Tom Kniff, regardless of how you know important or principled I think the race I'm running on is. But, you know, when you don't participate and you sit it out and then what's coming is exactly what we told everyone is coming. Um, and then you're on, you know, your radio show talking about how you're putting up $10,000 rewards and, uh, you don't want to lose uh, you know, this is outrageous and how could we have elected this guy, uh, you know, and, and grandstanding and all that. That's a little hard to take. Yeah. Angela brought up a good yeah. point. He didn't want to lose his sponsors. Do you think that really is a factor? Why, you know, these, uh, even the New York Post. I mean, on, I mean, seven, on 770, I mean, you run a, uh, I mean, I, I don't know what sponsors, you know, you guys running a conservative radio show. Yeah, I can't. I, you know, look, he does business in the city. Yeah, I, 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 well, you know, look, I, I was at an event with him for um, Lee Zeldin. Um, 
and uh, Lee's a, a long-term dear friend of mine. Um, you know, and he got up there and, and I was in the crowd. And I don't know if this was directed at me and they were probably other, a couple of other city uh, politicians running, you know, Republican. And, you know, he made a, a statement that, you know, look, I'm happy to support guys like Lee, but I do a lot of business with the city and a lot of contracts and I, there's certain things I can't do. I mean, I, it certainly seemed like he was speaking to me and maybe one or two other people in the room. And look, you know, again, that's your prerogative. I'm not, you know, I, I don't know what it's like to have that kind of money. I probably never will. Um, and, you know, you earned it yourself. You do with it what you will. You know, you're, you're not obligated to, to do a thing, a thing with it um, unless you want to. Again, you know, but don't come out and try to act like, oh, my God, how did this happen? And you're outraged, it, you know, as, as a as a ratings bonanza on, on your, your, you know, your media outlets. That's all I'll say. Personally, I'm sure he's a, a lovely man. Um, his daughter was, you know, uh, AJ, I like her very much. She gave me the opportunity to run. I'm, I'll always be appreciative of that. Um, but, you know, uh, look, it, it, you know, we are. Yeah. You know, Tom, one of the things yeah. that really hurt me a lot uh, is I reached out personally on your behalf to just about all the police unions. And, you know, they all just, oh, yeah, Joe, yeah, we'll, we'll get right on it. We'll, we'll try to get something done. How many police unions offered their support for you? Well, a lot of, you know, look, a lot, a lot did step, step up. I mean, look, they, you know, they could have certainly stepped up more. I mean, I think, you know, some gave us you know, a $1,000 check, but they gave us the endorsement, which, you know, I'm, I'm happy to take anything, but... You know, I mean, you look down my opponent's list, right? $34,500 max donation from the United Federation of Teachers. You know, what does the teachers union have to do with the DA's office, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, listen, Ed Mullins, say what you want about him, but he uh, he had me on the show and he was the first, and this is before he got into the problems that he's having now, but he was the one, he was the first one to step up and said, I'm writing you a check and I'm endorsing you. Um, and it was, a, a, at least by our campaign standards, a, a decent check um, as much as we got from anybody else. Um, but, yeah, very frustrating. I mean, I had a lot of lines into the PBA and Pat Lynch. And, uh, you know, the word we got back from Pat Lynch's office was, you know, well, we're tired of supporting the losing candidate. And, you know, yeah. he's right about the losing part. I don't know, you know, it, it, but look, you know, I mean, what, what are you doing here? You represent the interests of your members. And, you know, you have a, you know, one candidate who has a policy that uh, m policies that most would consider that I think most of his members at least would consider, you know, uh, totally in opposite to their interests and another guy out here. And, and you, yeah, there's something to be said for, you know, taking a stand for what's right, not necessarily handicapping the race. Right. right. And, you know, he could have done an endorsement. Could have given, given, could have given us something, and no, no individual person was going to make the difference. But collectively, you know, it, it's like a rolling, you know, it, it gathers energy, right? Um, what does it matter? And, you know, there was. Uh, but what does it matter being pardon? a Republican or a Democrat in, in the DA's office? The only difference is is the penalty. It, it's justice is blind, so it, it's not taking sides. Well, and that's look, and that's another thing. I mean, you know, we had. You know, another frustrating thing was, you know, the reception we received on the street 
in every neighborhood we went to. And I'd often, I'd go out by myself. I'd go to, you know, Zay bars and stand out there by myself, not even a, you know, volunteer with me. And, you know, it was so positive and people say, you know, people say, oh, you know, Republican in New York city, the numbers are what they are. You know, and I talked to, you know, we talked about that and, you know, clearly that that's an insurmountable problem in most circumstances. But when you had this low a turnout, you know, again, if you could reach people, I firmly believe that we could have at least made it a race. I don't know what the outcome would have been, but I think it could have put the ball in play. But so many people were on board, you know, and occasionally, you know, you'd get the one, you know, Trump, anti-Trump nut or whatever. And, you know, people as soon as they heard you were Republican, but, but it was so anecdotal that that would happen. Uh, right. I'd go to the most dem- traditionally democratic neighborhoods and be received so well because, you know, not because I'm some, you know, great charismatic guy, but because, you know, we're talking a, a language that they understood. And most people would say, look, you know, yeah, I'm a Democrat. We don't really care as a Democrat or Republican on a local level. Um, you know, I had no national, I had no opinion on issues that didn't relate to crime. I wasn't talking about Trump or abortion or you know, any of the things that often polarize people. Um, you know, so it was just, just really a, a wonderful reception. I and mean, one of the greatest things about the race and why, why I have no regrets running, it was just so great to, to really get in touch with the city on a boots on the ground level and meet people and go to the neighborhoods. And, and I really liked having those, you know, personal interactions with people. I think it was probably my favorite part of the whole thing. I gotta tell you, I, I, I think we shared this as we talked about the race, but, uh, I felt the same way with my race. I felt like a cop again, out on patrol, just going to different yeah. neighborhoods. Yeah, it's very, uh, you know, very endearing. I remember, I think, you know, the weekend before it was Halloween. It was the Sunday before the election, and there was a uh, at the Adam Clayton Powell office building. There was a, a big Halloween thing, and uh, uh, you know, for the Harlem community, and uh, we couldn't get. I couldn't get out of there, and I remember I promised my 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 wife, who was a saint, you know, because she dealt with me being on the COVID mission, right, and being away. And, living in, in Manhattan when she was out here in Oyster Bay with the kids and, and you know, uh, three little kids. And then, you know, it was Halloween and, she, you know, can you, you know, I, like, I want to go trick or treat. I got kids two, four and six, right? Those are the best ages mm-hmm. for that kind of stuff. So we're up in Oz. I'm going to get out of there early. We got our volunteers and I couldn't leave because there was just so, you know, people just wanted to engage, 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 and we're rooting for you and so forth. And people yeah. you know, associate, well, or a yeah. white Republican in black Harlem, good luck, you know, and yep. it was the opposite of that. Yep. Um, I, and they I knew agree. they were, they were, they were also among the most engaged voters because, uh, or constituents, I, how many of them voted? I don't know. Um, you know, a lot of them knew about, uh, you know, the race and didn't like the, what the other side was offering. And they were the ones that said, look, you know, we're the ones dealing with the, the crime epidemic here we're, we're getting affected the most by it um you know what they do in the polls and whether you know people right. you know right. from their party i you know i don't know but it, it was it, it was you know every all the 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 street level anecdotes that we had you know showed that look there was potential here um but you know you, you can only stand as i said before you can only stand on so many street corners you can only you know shake so many hands you know, you, you need yeah. more than that to, to yeah. compete. You know, I I don't want to belabor this. And truth, uh, just full disclosure, I've never liked Pat Lynch. I never voted for him. I always voted for the opposition. Uh, I I always characterize him as the Obama of police union presidents. He speaks great. He's a wonderful speaker. 
But beyond the speech, there's nothing there. And the thing that I'm really upset about, especially with your race, he didn't back my race either, uh, especially with your race, he didn't have to, even if you take for what he says is true, oh, we're tired of supporting uh, people that uh, uh, will lose the race, whatever he said. Okay, so financially, you're worried about spending your members' money on, on a race that he deemed to be unwinnable. What's wrong with getting the cops out there? What's wrong with an endorsement? What's wrong with other resources that you well, can they want to you know, they want to cozy up to the incoming administration i mean like exactly. you guys exactly i didn't want to say it i wanted you to say it yeah. that's exactly well, yeah. what I mean, it is. It's, the only, it's the only reasonable effort i mean like, i have nothing against pat lynch i don't know the man um you know i've never been on the job so uh you know what have you but um you know it got to the point where like look the last couple of days you know i mean we were we were burning you know we had you know nickels in our account i i spent you know a, a chunk of my own money on the race and that's fine i'm glad to have done it but i just don't have that much to spend yeah. uh you know um COVID, defense bar has been hurt by covid probably, uh, like a lot of yes. like a lot of professions uh, but yeah. um you know i got to, it was like you know we, we were trying to get word to him like look you know you guys have that sign truck right because i remember you know it was like a day before like the day before the election and and uh da bragg or you know had his uh truck going around we saw we're like we need one of these we're calling around I'm like oh you know thirty four hundred dollars you know and i'm like uh here's my visa card <laughs> we were gonna do it like the blues brother with a bullhorn <laughs> we were talking about doing it yeah, so we're trying to get to look, like, look, could, could you maybe, could you maybe put, because I know the PBA has those trucks or the board, yeah. could you maybe put a couple of those out there and have somebody drive them around and in kind donation. Uh, you know, and, and it just, you know, it, it wasn't, wasn't going to happen. But, you know, and, and again, he's another example. Look, all right, like, fine, you know, it's your union, you know, you allocate your resources, you see fit, nobody owes me nothing. But then there's you know, no excuse for that. He's allowed, he's allowed his voice up in arms about Alvin Bragg and oh my God, how could we do this? How will we elect this? So forth. I'm like, look, you know, I in fairness, you know, I, I again, I have not, you know, personally, my interactions with Alvin um, have been, you know, he's always been a gentleman. We've had, we, we've, we've, you know, really only met in forums like this, but whenever we've been off camera, we've always had some, you know, a, a very pleasant exchange. I think he's a, he's a very nice man. Um, but, you know, and in fairness to him, you know, one thing you could say, you know, you don't like his policies, but it was transparent. He, you know, he said, look, this is what I'm voting for. It's what we're going to do. So when he's when he says, you know, I can't believe this is the reaction. I, I you know, I empathize with him a little bit because I'm an issue is, hey, what's the problem here? I ran on this. I put this out there. This is what I said I was going to do. And now everybody's screaming bloody murder. He has a very fair point there. Exactly. I still don't agree with his policies. Exactly. But, but, he, but in that regard, you can't really criticize the man. So let's move to that that issue right now, because, like I said, the point of this was not to bash Alvin Bragg. We have to live with him. He's now the DA, you know, and our safety, you know, we're in Manhattan all the time. Our safety uh, rides on what he does. So what I wanted to, to, to try to dialogue with you about is in what way would you say is the most important thing that we should try to persuade him of? Like what, what area of his new policy? Oh boy. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's tough because, you know, there's so many things that, you know, I, I think are, are wrong headed about his policies. 
Um, you know, one of the things, you know, maybe point with a very broad, broad brush is that, look, you know, I, I, there are probably examples within almost every category in that now infamous memo where we say, look, you know, yeah, there are certain circumstances where this is the right approach for a gun case, for an attempted murder case, for a homicide. And I'm handling an attempted murder right now where I really think taking off my defense attorney advocate hat for a moment, that I think a non-carceral sentence is appropriate because of so many outside the mainstream factors. But, you know, there's a difference between saying, look, that kind of discretion, that kind of compassion where appropriate in a district attorney's office is great. But you don't go out there and say, look, this is going to be the policy one size fits all. or This is going to be the default in every case. You know, get away from that. You know, say, look, I, I'm here. I, I you know, I, I, he talks about his life experiences. That's fine. He talks about his professional experience. I want to take a, an approach here that's going to incorporate all that and look at cases on an individual level. That's a good thing, I think. Uh, you know, the 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 burglary robberies in the stores. You know, that's got to go. Uh, there can't be any. Um, you know, he's he's. I don't know where he's at now. It seems like he may be evolving a bit. That's a good thing. Um, you know, talking about hey, we're we're not going to necessarily go after every gun illegal gun possession case. That's got to stop. You know, as a matter of blanket policy. You want to talk about, you know, hey, we're going to look at individual gun cases and say, you know, I've had, I think we've all had a variation of a case where, you know, I've had a, a law-abiding citizen come up from Alabama with his family. He has an, he has a, a carry permit that's valid in all 50 states and New York, except there's a carve out for New York City. He doesn't know that. He, he, he stopped by the police for some innocent reason and said, oh, yeah, you know, my gun's in the center console, thinking no big deal. Next thing you know, he's facing the C felony uh gun possession charge and a three and a half year mandatory minimum yeah we all agree that a case like that that's that sort of prosecutorial expression uh, discretion we want but right he, he can't you know right. you can't have the, the the chief law enforcement official getting up there and telegraphing maybe it's not really what he intended but but saying something that can be interpreted to people in the street and saying hey there's not going to be a stiff consequence for illegal gun possession that has to be the default you know, and then if there's an exception, hey, that's what guys like us are for, right? And then, you know, and then the little stuff. I mean, look, you know, he, he's made the analogy often. Seth Barron, uh, who, who I, I think writes for the City Journal, I'm, I'm not, he's a very intelligent guy. Uh, so I want to reference him because I'm about to plagiarize him. Um, he uh, he wrote a great article saying that look, you know, this notion that jumping a turnstile is like crossing the George Washington Bridge without paying the toll, and we're going to send you an easy pass summons, is you know a utterly upside down narrative. Okay, you know, so this, the New York City subway system has traditionally been. I mean, it's a great people mover, but it's also been an incubator. And I'm lecturing to the choir here with you two. Yeah. Uh, haven't haven't you know walked that I've never walked as far as keeping law and order in the city, um, you know, has been an incubator of criminal activity because you have people in a vulnerable, confined environment. And, you know, it, it, it has been, you know, ground zero for, for a long time. Um, and certainly pre Giuliani Bloomberg for criminal activity and people don't have the ability to just cross the bridge and drive off. 
FTWB. You know, we don't have rapes, we don't have murders, we don't have splashings on our bridges and tunnels for the most part. We have them and always have them in our state. So, you know, once someone jumps that turnstile, yeah, and no one's saying we send them to Rikers, but that is right. a moment where the criminal justice system should intervene because they have already telegraphed that they have the willingness to put their interests above that of society. Now, maybe that just means they don't want to pay the fare, but maybe it also means that they're willing to commit a much more serious crime once they get past this, the turnstiles and the train rolls out of the station. So, you know, that I think, even though it's looked at as part of the more, you know, maybe one of the less controversial, and I know Vance was doing it as well, and, and I, I that's why I've had a lot of problems with Cy Vance, the way Cy Vance ran things. Yeah. That, that's not going to work, man. You know, one of the things that Ange and I talked about, and I guess, you know, in a large part because we were police officers, I think the most important thing change that I would recommend to him is this animus towards the police. You're in the business of law enforcement. You're the chief law enforcement officer of, of New York County. You can't take this animus position with the police department Specifically, and, and I'm sure you've seen this in the post, there were a couple of articles where police officers who are making good arrests and wanting to charge robbery or their weapons involved, they're being told by the prosecutor after they tell them the facts, they send back an affidavit that has removed the violence in this act so they could charge the lesser charge. I mean, you're, you're butting heads with officers and, and I, I think, you know, subliminally, it, it's a terrible practice to have somebody not tell the truth. You're telling a police officer not to oh, yeah. tell the truth, swear yeah. to this, God bless. it's not the truth. God bless that police officer that, that had the moxie to stand up and said, I'm not signing the thing. I mean, look, you know, it, it's hard to it's hard to focus on one thing because you talk about one thing and you're like, yeah, that's crazy. And then, then you look at the other, you're like, oh, that's, that's just as bad. Yeah, and, and, you know, certainly that and the resisting arrest, you know, look, you know, why would you possibly want to send a message, right? Even if your intentions are well are good, you know, why right. would you want to publicly put out a message that has the potential to be interpreted by perps on the street that I can resist arrest if I feel like it, right? Yeah. I can obstruct government administration. I mean, you know, come on. Come on. Man. You're incentivizing. Right? Um, you're incentivizing. You're, you're, in, you're incentivizing it. And look, you know, yes, we're defense attorneys. We've all <laughs> seen the write-ups where, all right, you know, it's a resisting arrest and nothing else. What is this? You know, you didn't have probable cause. You know, fine. You deal with that case. You reprimand that officer. You send it up to a supervisor. You know, you, 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 you decline pros. Then the guy goes and gets a, a civil rights lawyer and takes the city for 10 grand for his troubles. All right. Not all right. perfect, but that's how, right. you know, that there are other ways to deal with this. Right. And then it's saying, well, you know, if there's a, if there's a prosecutor, prosecutable offense, we're still going to prosecute the resisting arrest. Yeah. But the problem is now you've classified swaths of misdemeanors that you're no longer going to prosecute anymore, like criminal trespass and violations, disorderly conduct and so forth. So right. what happens when you have the scenario with when, when anybody who's commuted through any of our transit hubs, including Penn Station, which unfortunately I have to go through some days, um, which is, an, you know, it's turned into an open air psychiatric hospital. Um, you know, you see the, uh, the, 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 the miscreant, you know, who's got 
10 police officers in a semicircle around him and, he, and he's prodding and screaming and suck this and this and that. And, you know, of course, the police don't want to move in because, you know, someone's got a video camera or, or what can they arrest them for anymore? Right. So so we all know that, look, that's disorderly conduct. Right. That's the baseline offense the guy's doing. He's blocking pedestrian traffic. He's he's cursing. He's making unreasonable noise in a public place. Well, you know, D.A. Bragg doesn't want to prosecute disorderly conduct. So what if the police say, OK, well, we're going to go in and make the arrest anyway, at least to put a blanket on the situation. And then the guy resists arrest and he's throwing elbows and he's kicking and flaring. Well, you're not going to prosecute that either, I don't think, because you said you're not going to prosecute disorderly conduct. Right. Or if his buddy, his fellow right. miscreant, you know, comes over and puts down his uh, 40 ounce and tries to get involved. Now, he's obstructing. Obstructing is not going to be prosecuted anymore as a standalone offense. Yeah. So it's just, you yeah. know, it, it is yeah. it's just absolute crazy sauce. And then comes um, the civil suit, and, then, and now the city council removing qualified immunity. You're not get qualified immunity anymore. So, you know, it's one thing to ask, you know, a, you know, heroes like yourselves to put on the uniform and do a job and put yourself out there and, and all the risks that come into that. And thank God we have people like yourselves that are willing to do that. But, it, you know, it's another thing to say, look, you know, we're going to send you out there on a suicide mission. Right. And you got no legal right. protections and you may get, you know, your head face bashed in. And then, by the way, you know, you might get sued after. And, and now that you know, they're coming after your house, you know, you just you are not going to be able to. You know, one of the ways we're going to have good policing is by recruiting the best and brightest police officers. You know, people right. know hey, you know, right. look, I'm not going to make Wall Street money. It's a good job. There's a pension. There's honor. There's integrity. There's cachet to it. You know, and I'm gonna, you know, giving something to the community, and I'm gonna be that community and that political structure is gonna stand behind me if things go wrong. You know, I'm not talking about you know police officers who are you know breaking the law. We have those, then, then right. they deserve what they get. Right. But you know, if it's a jump ball and the police officers reasonably trying to do the right thing, you know, we're gonna back them up, right? You take all that. And yeah, there's going to be someone to fill a position, but who are you getting to fill the positions now? And then you want to see real corruption and, and, yeah. and, you know, real ugliness on policing. I mean, that, that's a recipe in and of itself for it. Absolutely. 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 You know, one last thing about, you know, the relationship with the police and the DA's office. I just remember I, I worked on the Morgenthau and he was the DA in Manhattan and, uh, there were some DAs that, you know, when you made collars and you, you got familiar with certain DAs, they would work with you and they would encourage you. Like we would go on DA assignments to look for witnesses and find evidence. And, you know, I, I remember I, I got a confession out of a guy and I asked the, the ADA when, uh, you know, we were writing up the case. And I said, I know I can flip this guy. I know I can get him. And it was pre-arraignment. And I had just lodged him in central book. And so he goes, bring him up. So we brought him up. We talked to him a little bit. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we made some progress, but I got some information. It was a stolen car. And then it was part of a chop shot. It was a tag job. So then I went and the DA, I'm working with the DA, the ADA. Uh, he was like, fine, call the guy in the hospital. I'm, I'm calling around doing all this. I spent hours with him. And then I brought him up again to talk to him, you know, all legally, Mirandize and whatnot. And then I confronted him with facts that he just couldn't refute. 
you know, because he, like, for example, he gave me information. He bought the car from so-and-so, whatever. I called so-and-so and I told him his friend's in a lot of trouble. Uh, the car appears to be stolen. Did you sell it to him? Blah, blah, blah. So I, I got all the information, the color of the paint. And then the guy was just confronted with it and gave it up. So the ADA was like, wow, because that, that was excellent. I love that. But when you have that relationship with the office, you can do stuff like this. And watching Eric Adams, his real global comprehensive approach to gun violence is going to require stuff like that, working together, you know, uh, being yeah, comfortable absolutely. working together. So I, I really just think Alvin Bragg is going to be the thorn in, in the side of, of achieving that goal unless he comes to his senses on that. You need the police. They are not your enemy. you got to protect them and defend them, and they will work for you. They will help you accomplish your goals. All prosecutors, their goals are to achieve public safety. I mean, that's the bottom line. We want all yeah, the out of yeah, absolutely. And look, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, look, I'm hoping that Alvin, you know, the DA Bragg will come around. I mean, look, I think the one thing that, that it's shown is that, you know, he is sensitive to this criticism. You know, you get a, a lot of these guys like, you know, Chessa Bodine and so forth. I mean, they're just zealots. They don't care what anybody's saying. You know, they're right. going to do their thing. I mean, right. you know, he went out and hired this public relations firm and you saw that, you know, there were there that there were favorable articles almost immediately or more measured articles, at least in the more, you know, left leaning sources. So, you know, and, and he's made overtures, you know, so he appears to care about, you know, this perception of him and hopefully he cares about getting it right. Um, right. You know, and, and, and so I think there's opportunity there, you know, for for someone like, at you know, people like Adams, uh, you know, to to, to you know, lean on him. Um and Adams has to do that. Look, you know, I, I, I am rooting for Adams, right? We, you know, we'd be crazy not to. And certainly, you right. know, anyone is a is right. a, a breath of fresh air compared to the, you know, that that oh absolute zero that we had oh in, in office for the last um, eight years, right? But you know, there is, you know, the rubber's got to hit the road with Adams. You know, you got to get past. You know, you're going to be mayor of New York City if you're looking to be liked. You got the wrong job, pal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, you've got to be willing to make enemies, um, you know, and, and, you know, within, you know, uh, among the Sharptons of the world and whoever else. And, you know, you're not going to be able to please everyone. He's saying a lot of the right things, um, but and, and certainly bringing back the anti-crime was, you know, that's a tangible step. I wish he brought them back, not with their names on their uniforms, because that goes right. against the idea of undercover right. policing. Yeah. But, hey. It, it, it's something, but you know, he, he's got to do that. And, he, and he's got, and, he, and the only thing I don't like about what I hear from him, although he's far from the worst offender is what we were talking about earlier in the show, this idea that, you know, we need to stop the flow of the guns and the firearms in yeah. Washington, DC yeah. and I 95. I mean, look, yeah. I mean, I 95 is a, 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 a artery of inequity, you know, for guns and drugs always has. Yeah. Been. So we want it. Yeah. You know, we, we want, the, the you know the state police and the various states and the feds supporting that but you know it, it's never going to be enough you know the same politicians that want to lecture us on how the, the the drug interdiction is is folly because where there's a demand for drugs is going to be a supply and the war on drugs was a failure and so forth and they may be right about that you know want us to somehow believe that adopting those same policies are going to fit on problem it's it's not they may have their place but it's not so 
you know, he has said some good things, you know, and, and recently about, you know, this, this sort of universal approach, but it's got to be, you know, hot and heavy on, on the streets in New York, NYPD, task force, what have you. Absolutely. Going after the guns Absolutely. where we know they are. They're not on, they're not on you know, 72nd and Madison. Right. right. You um, know, the law right. enforcement is the so tip of the spear. They have to interdict and, and stop. And stop, question, and frisk is a major key tool uh, that was successful, at least when in my day, was very successful in taking guns off the street. Yeah, it was incredibly successful, and a lot of people don't understand what stop and frisk is. That's another part of the, uh, you know, the misinformation campaign. Um, you know, your average person thinks that, you know, there was a time in New York where police officers just walk up to, uh, you know, anyone, someone yeah. of color or, or yeah. whoever, and just stop and frisk them. Uh, that was never the law. It was never constitutional. The Constitution was never suspended in New York City or New York State. Uh, and you know, I, I cross-examined a lot of police officers at suppression hearings. I've gotten you know a lot of guns and, and drugs suppressed, and there's no question a lot of police officers overstepped their boundaries. Um, but there there was a safeguard against that. It's called the Constitution and the and the and the, uh, the Fourth Amendment. Um, yeah. Doesn't mean that you know stop and frisk being re you know can't be reincarnated better. That doesn't mean that we have we have to be vigilant in making sure that there aren't excesses. And that people aren't being, you know, or certain classes of people or races and ethnicities aren't being disproportionately targeted, right? Just based on their race or ethnicity, right? Unfortunately, the, the, the reality surrounding violent crime in New York City is that violent crime is committed disproportionately, overwhelmingly by young men of color in this city. Yes. Okay. Yes. That, that does not mean, by the way, that that it also isn't true that the vast majority of young men of color do not commit crime they do right. not commit crime right that that is also a fact those facts can exist uh yeah. side by side but yeah. a disproportionate amount of those that do commit crime are young men of color so you know if we're doing if we're, if we're going after guns right you know it's it's inevitable that that there's going to be higher numbers of, of people of color um, that are, you know, stopped and arrested um, and charged. Okay. And we can also, by the way, in conjunction with that, double down, triple down all our resources to get at the underlying issues that make that a reality. Okay. Um, whether, you know, it is a, a systemic, you know, historic racism, poverty, whatever the case, and, and tackle those too. Um, so that hopefully that we're having this conversation in 10, 15, 20 years, that's not the case, but right. we have to deal with the problems that are here right now. And someone's, uh, you know, Texas, you know, since when do criminals care about gun laws? Um, well, criminals may not care about gun laws per se, but, but they understand deterrence. Right. Right. And one quick thing I right. want to add is, you know, what's often left out of the equation is. Um, well, you know, I, I've heard people say that, um, uh, and I think DA Bragg has said that, you know, there's no evidence that longer sentences, you know, are successful at deterring behavior. Okay. I, I don't know whether that's true or not. Uh, in other words, like in, in, in specifically deterring that criminal, but one, 
we practice three things. The three of criminal sentencing are specific deterrence, deterring that individual that's arrested from doing it again. General deterrence, though, which is to deter the community at large saying, hey, look, so-and-so got caught with a gun and he did five years. I don't want to do five years, so I'm not going to be carrying that gun. But what is most often left out of the, the equation is the concept of incapacitation, right? The notion selective that taking that individual, selective. Right, right, by taking that individual off the street and putting them away for five years, um, you know, where obviously where the underlying crime is appropriate, not for shoplifting, um, you're reasonably assuring society that they won't be victimized by that individual violent criminal, right? And, and that is a a noble and essential goal of sentencing. Um, I personally don't like seeing anyone go to jail. I, I hope that we could eventually uh, achieve the the pseudo utopia that the progressives appear seem to believe is is possible. Uh, that would be great. Right. But you know, unfortunately, right. you know, human nature is human nature, and and and, and there's uh, you know there there are those who do bad among us, and, and you know, taking those individuals and removing them for society is a necessary evil in many cases. You know, just uh, before we, we uh, close out here, Tom, I just wanted to, I do this all the time, so don't be offended by it. There's, there's this misconception about what we call, you know, a Terry stop, stop, question, and frisk. And people just say it's stop and frisk. It's not, and it never was. When I was trained and I came on the job in 1987, and you know the case, Terry versus Ohio, it's not just your reasonable suspicion of, of a person carrying a weapon. It's your reasonable suspicion that there's uh, criminal activity afoot. The criminal activity may not necessarily be involving a weapon, although in Terry it was. It was a jewelry store robbery. But the law is that you have the right, if you have reason, a reasonable, articulable belief that there is, there was a crime, is a crime, or may be a crime taking place, you have the right to stop the person forcibly and question them. You, it's not in tandem that you can do the frisk. You also have to have an articulable belief about suspicion of a weapon or of some sort you can't they're, they're not married together because yeah. we had to do yeah, these things for the US look, 250s. Look. and these 250s you yeah have to I mean, you know, yeah i think that's you know look that's what we're getting at before but unfortunately you know you try to explain this to someone who doesn't you know apply their trade in the criminal justice system you know and they glaze over and, and you know the new york times isn't going to do it even though they, they supposedly appear to you know appeal to the intellectual class um, but yeah, I mean, look, you know, there, there's the four basis, right? The DeBoer case, and I don't right, think this yeah. esoteric because we're going to lose listeners, right? But you know, you need an articulable a police officer needs an articulable basis just to even be able to approach and say, "Hey, how are you?" You know, where where are you coming from, right? And then yeah. you know, the more pointed yeah. questioning, you know, weren't you at the bar? You know, that that requires a higher level, it requires founded suspicion, right. um, and only when right. you have the reasonable cause to believe criminal activity was afoot, which is a little less than the probable cause you need to conduct the arrest, could you then, you know, conduct a, a frisk? Um, you know, there was just never a time in 
this or modern times, I guess, since the Terry case came out, which I think is from the 60s, yeah, um, yeah. you know, where, where the, you can do that. And, and the New York Constitution gives a defendant even more rights than the federal Constitution. Right. Now, does it mean that police officers always follow the law? Absolutely not. And, Absolutely and, you know, not. They're, they're, you know, and that, 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 that you, need, you need the checks and balances, of course. Um, sadly, and, uh, that's what, you know, but. Sadly, that's what was happening. And I know just from, from when I, you know, I retired in 02, but towards the end of my career, I witnessed it. You know, the, these younger cops coming on, it was just, you know, I walked down Roosevelt Avenue and, uh, you know, you see an unmarked car pull over, they jump out, search everyone, jump back in the car and go, and they keep going. It was not done the right way. And that's because the administration made it a, an, an activity that you had, like we had monthly activity reports we had to fill out, sums as arrests, eight, you know, uh, misdemeanors, felonies, accident reports, whatever. So you had your monthly activity. They want to see what you're doing out there. And they put that as a now an activity. And I remember my CEO, it was Jimmy Hall, who ended up being a chief. He wrote in big, you know, numbers and letters on the back of my activity report and sent it back to me. No 250s. Now, I made a lot of arrests in my career and I was always active on the street. But for whatever reason, I don't know, I was on vacation or I was in training. I didn't have a lot of uh, uh, activity that month. So he put in big numbers and, and letters. No UF 250s. Like he, he didn't care how I got them. He just wanted them. You know what I mean? So. That kind of abuse permeated the, the department and what led to these unnecessary stops because now I didn't witness anything that I needed to, to get a stop, but now I have the CEO directing his you know attention at me. Hey, no 250s on your uh, monthly report. You better get some. So what happens? Some cops will go out there and they'll just start tossing people just so they could check the box. And that, that really is what led to it. But we could talk yeah, all night and, long, Tom. Yeah. It, 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 look, I think it goes back, Joe, just to quickly, you know, we we're talking about before, you know, the difference between saying things weren't done the right way and they need to be done better. We're going to use discretion. We're not going to put, you know, quotas and mandates out there, right? There's a difference between that and then saying, you know, but taking it to the point where the progressives say that we want to ban all plainclothes policing, you know, one is is a reasonable approach to making things better you know the other is is homicidal right, right. And, and and you know that it goes back to talking about the memo before you know there's a difference between saying that hey look you know we want to pay pay extra special attention to standalone resisting arrest because historically they've been indicative of potential police abuse and but going or going out there saying that we're not going to prosecute resisting arrests anymore you know there's you know, there, there are reasonable common sense, you know, mediums that can be arrived at. And, you know, we got to get rid of the, the zealotry, you know, on, 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 perhaps on both sides. I agree. And uh, like I said, I could talk to you all night long about this. And I think, you know, I hope that this was educational for our listeners to hear, you know, practitioners talking about, you know, what's happening, what's coming and what Alvin Bragg is doing and the impact so, uh, and Ange too, you know, our police experience interjecting that uh, where appropriate. So, Tom, I just want to close with just to ask you, what's next for you? 
I'm trying to go back to make some money again in my defense <laughs> practice. Um, yeah, now look, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I never, you know, I, I said during the race, but it, it's very true, although I, I'm sure some people in political theater say this for theater. Uh, you know, I never really had thought about being a politician or getting into politics or even being district attorney. Uh, I, I enjoyed uh, my time as assistant DA, but I've checked that box and moved on. Um, I, I did it, you know, because I, I really thought that there was a narrative that had to be had. And I, I thought under the right circumstances, it was uh, it would have been viable. Um, but, you know, I, I'm happy just to, you know, I love being a defense attorney. I love, uh, you know, having somebody who uh, has the whole weight of the criminal justice system come down on them uh, and the government, you know, to be the only person standing between that force and them. Uh, you know, so we'll see. I mean, if there, uh, you know, people have asked me, well, would you do this? Would you do that? You know, if there was a, if there was the right, you know, thing that came my way, you know, to run for something and I had the right support behind me and it wasn't, you know, just a kamikaze mission, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't I would never say never. But, uh, you know, other than that, you know, it, it's it's family and, and law practice right now. I just have one more follow up on that. Could we just put this up there? Is this on there? Which one is that? This is the PDF. <laughs> you don't have to answer if you don't want to answer it. I'll tell you what my answer was. Do you see what's up here? This is part uh, of uh, enhanced existing belief. Do you have right thing up there? No, that's, there. no, that's not it. Uh, I don't know. Where are you? Where are you? This is neighborhood. This is neighborhood safety teams. Here goes. Is this it? Yeah. Okay. Do you see this? This came out of Eric Adams, uh, you know, plan to combat gun violence. And I just scrolled into this part here where it says city judicial appointments. You know, the mayor has the the power to appoint judges. And uh, it says in in future mayoral judicial appointments a demonstrated commitment to keeping violent criminals who use guns off New York City streets will be a top priority and consideration under the Adams administration. So I ask you, just because it's been asked of me too, you know, would you consider a judicial appointment? I don't think there's anyone that fits this criteria better than you. <laughs> you know? You know? Well, I mean, I don't know. I'll have to ponder it very, very much because I doubt very much that anybody's going to ask me to consider, uh, you know, a judicial appointment. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I guess I'm running on the wrong party in New York City. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I mean, look, it, it, it would be uh, it might be a tough sell. I mean, I, I have tremendous respect for the uh, the judges in our city. Um, and we have some great ones, by the way. Um, but you know, it, it's a, uh, I think it could be a thankless job, um, on a lot of levels. Um, you certainly don't do it for the money. Right. Um, right. and you know, it, it's a very passive role. Um, you know, I obviously, you know, people look at the esteemed position of the, the judge and putting on the robe and all that. And I guess there would be some, uh, uh, you know, you know, a little, uh, that might be a heady experience for the first couple of days. Um, but beyond that, you know, when you when you're guys like us, you're used to being in the arena and fighting the fight, right? Not yeah. refereeing the fight. Right. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I don't know that, that that's something that uh, in the in the very improbable 
case that I was ever asked to do it. I, I'd want to, but uh, I guess, like I said before, never say never. Yeah, you don't have to make it a lifetime thing like some of these judges, but yeah. why not check the box and uh, spend a few years on the bench, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then you get, your, uh, you get your teaching gig after that. Yeah, right. Um, listen, I... I yeah, I got my uh, my my eyes set on you know the uh, the, the beach bar in Key West as uh, you know my next <laughs> my next career move. <laughs> Reliving my bartending days from law school, but uh, you know uh, I, I'd be very flattered if anybody asked me, but I don't know that that that, that day will come. Uh, so, well, Tom, can they have, listen? Uh, any parting thoughts? And please, just uh, if you could put out your website and stuff, we're gonna we're gonna link it to our. Uh, did we have it already done? Yes. Angela already did it. We want to promote you and uh, Razor Kniff. You and your partner have a great firm. I've seen you in action. I know what you're about. Uh, I would definitely, you'd be the guy I'd call if I got jammed up, you know? So uh, any parting words before we close out? No, listen, I, I think that it, it's so important that, um, you know, what, what guys like you are doing um, and, and you know, you and Angie and having this show because, you know, my God, there's so much, uh, you know, misinformation out there, fragmented information, people shoot, you know, shouting, you know, their own rhetoric and, you know, the media, the traditional media is all about, you know, the soundbite, right? So how do you ever get in the substance, you know? If you tuned into something like this, whether you agree with us or not, we've been going for what almost two hours. You actually get substance, you know. Right. You could you maybe maybe right. you, you disagree with every word, I, everything I said. Or, you know, fine, that's democracy. But you're getting you really the getting, yeah, you know, and, and it's it's a wonderful thing. And so you know, as much as they knock, you know, the internet and social media and all the chaos it creates in our society, if people really use it the right way. You know, you can have a real conversation as opposed to, you know, the, the circus, you know, so, sideshow sound bites you're going to get on cable news. Right. So right. Yeah, that's all I got to say, uh, you know, and having said that, if, if you need a criminal defense attorney or, or any, you know, we're, we're a full service law firm. So we handle other types of cases and you can't afford Joe Murray. You come and call us. <laughs> Well, Tom, listen, you're an absolute pleasure. Uh, I'm so glad we became friends and uh, I look forward to working with you in the future, you know, especially with these federal cases, you know, they pay a lot more. So, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, thank you. You've been so gracious with your time and uh, we really appreciate it. And I hope you would come back if we have uh, the need to uh, dive deeper into this. Anytime, anytime. I'd love to. And, th okay. and thanks for all the support you've given me. And, and if it wasn't for you, I probably would never ran. And I don't regret running. It was a great experience. And I think we put an important narrative out there. And I always say we because I'm just one person. It was the people out behind me like yourselves. Um, and look, you know, that narrative may have affected part of what we're seeing now where we're really, you know, people are saying, wait, let's let's uh, let, let's let, you know, common sense and reason enter the dialogue. So. Amen. Amen. So it's been great. Thank Amen. you. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, Sam. Okay, thanks. Any parting words? Oh, no. you're going to let me talk now. <laughs> oh. oh, Lord. I just want to say. If, if not for Ange, we wouldn't be here because I know you would know. Oh, you know that. I should have pulled the plug an hour neither ago. I, neither would I. So uh, <laughs> yeah, you want to talk about the most important person. But, you know, I just want to say when Bragg decides he wants to, you know, finish with 
redefining the term convenience store, he has to work together with Adams Sewell, the police commissioner. Now, let's just say history is being made, okay? The first black um, African-American mayor, PC, and DA. Now let's step it up and be the three that brings New York City back to, you know, being the greatest city again. Yeah, they could be three heroes or three stooges. It's up to them. Uh, And look, I I hope that's going to, you know, motivate, uh, you know, uh, Alvin. I really do. You know, (laughs) you have a chance to, to be part of history here. I mean, you know, he's won a historic race. He already is part of history. I get that. Um, but, but, you know, to, to really do something incredible and, uh, you know, you you gotta, you know, you just gotta keep the, you know, that far left progressive, you know, zealot people, you know, they may have, they may have supported you from the beginning and so forth. I'm not saying that they're not entitled to a seat at the table, right? A lot of those people are my colleagues and they're out there doing God's work, many of them doing it, you know, legal aid society and so forth, where you, you get, you know, all of the grief and very little of the, uh, you, you know, uh, accolades, um, not not bad humans, right? But, uh, you know, you're you're elected to, to, to lead this city through really a time of crisis. Um, and, you know, the, the, the innocent lives in the street are what's got to, you know, steer the ship. Where's the wisdom? <laughs> so I just want to thank everyone. I'm sorry we were ignoring the chat and uh, your questions. Uh, I, I really just love talking to Tom and I get lost in that, you know, and, and <laughs> even ignore Ange. So, but thank you all for turning in and uh, we really enjoy having you, Tom. Thank you so much. On behalf of uh, Tom, Ange, and, and myself, have a good night and be safe, everyone. And please remember these officers. Remember them and their families in your prayers. Thursday at St. Patrick's Cathedral from 1 to 8 p.m. is going to be the uh, wake for Officer uh, Jason Rivera. I don't know if they're now going to include Officer Mora because tragically he passed away today. Uh, and then Friday is going to be the funeral mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral. I've never heard that before. That's an honor bestowed on this officer. Well-deserving, but I've never heard that being done before. He's being waked and having the mass service. So to me, that's that's just the cardinal being the guy he is and, and reaching out and trying to help. We really need to unite this city. I encourage everyone. Usually it's, it's police officers that come to the police funerals and, and the wake. I'd really love to see the community come out there and send a message to that the bad actors in our society that we are united. We're backing our police officers. We support our officers. And you will not kill one of our officers and expect to walk away from this. So thank you all very much. Thank you, Tom. Ange, thank you. I'm going to hear it later. <laughs> and we'll see you next time on Allegedly Guilty. Good, Good night, night, everybody. Good night.